Welcome to another edition of Focus on the Kingdom. I'm Anthony Buzzard inviting you again to search your Bible with us for a few moments today as we continue with our ongoing discussion of Jesus' favorite topic, the gospel or good news about the kingdom of God. It really is an unarguable fact that Jesus was concerned above all with one major topic in his preaching, that central heading which stands above all of Jesus' discourse is that phrase, the kingdom of God. That's his major topic, the master idea which underlies everything that he said. He came indeed to preach the gospel of the kingdom of God. Those are Jesus' own words in that wonderful verse, Luke 4, verse 43. I came to proclaim the gospel about the kingdom, he said. That's the reason for which I was sent, Luke 4 verse 43. And in Acts 8.12, the church was faithfully imitating Jesus' style as they too continued relentlessly to preach the kingdom of God. In Acts 8, verse 12, we have a wonderful, simple, creedal statement, an encapsulation of how evangelism was done in the Bible. The question is, are we doing evangelism along the lines of our own model or the model given us by Jesus and the apostles? I have to question the validity of our own model because it doesn't sound like the model provided by Jesus and the apostles who followed him. In Acts 8, verse 12, we have this statement, When they believed Philip, as he was evangelizing them about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were getting baptized, both men and women alike. Now, that's an early creedal statement, if you like, a short summary of what it was to become a Christian. You became a Christian in New Testament times when you grasped certain facts, and those facts, be it noted carefully, were not confined to just information about the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, of course, Jesus' death, an atoning sacrifice for our death, to blot out our wicked past, is absolutely essential to the Christian venture. You cannot become a Christian without believing in the death of Christ. And equally, of course, it's impossible to be a true believer if you don't think that Jesus was raised from the dead on the third day, supernaturally recovered from his grave, and reanimated now as an immortal person who actually, in that immortal capacity, was still able to eat and drink and to be recognized, to be touched. He was palpable and he was recognizable by his own friends. Touch me, he said. A spook or a ghost does not have flesh and bones, as you see I have. You'll find that wonderful account in Luke 24. He then proceeded to have breakfast by the side of a lake, and that's what immortal people can do. They don't become wispy ghosts floating around on clouds. They are palpable and recognizable human beings, nevertheless immortalized and glorified, and no longer subject to death or disease. That's the demonstration of immortality that Jesus has given us. And he, we should note carefully, is the only human being yet to have been immortalized. The rest of the faithful will become immortalized only at the future resurrection. And that future resurrection, in the wonderful verse in 1 Corinthians 15:23, will occur only when Jesus returns. It's at his second coming that the faithful of all the ages will be raised in one great community and be given immortality via resurrection 
so that they can indeed partake in that age to come of the kingdom of God on the earth. Abraham, you see, looked forward to the coming of the Messiah and to his second coming indeed, knowing that the kingdom of God would be established on the earth in the promised land. Abraham himself lived in the land of the promise, the promised land. You'll read this in Hebrews 11, verse 8. But he never inherited any area of that promised land, except, of course, for that small package of land that he purchased in order to find a place to bury his wife. But Abraham and Isaac and Jacob died. We read in Hebrews 11, verse 26. They died not having received the promises. They died, however, in faith, fully expecting to be resurrected at the second coming of Christ in power and glory. The life that they lived those millennia ago now was a very partial realization of full relationship with God. They struggled through life by faith. They did not see what had been promised, but they believed it only with the eyes of faith. What they will actually see when they're raised from the dead will be the fulfillment of that promise that drove the whole of their lives and gave them the faith to endure. The situation is no different with us Christians. We are to be driven by hope, that great second virtue after love. Faith, hope, and love are the three cardinal virtues of the Christian faith, but hope must be defined if it really is to operate as hope. And hope in the Bible is not the hope of disappearing to heaven as a disembodied soul at death. That's one of the great fallacies underlying some preaching the hope of the Bible is to be resurrected in order to reign as a king with Messiah on the earth. Revelation 5, verse 10. And Jesus had said just exactly the same thing earlier in his teaching ministry when he declared that the meek are going to have the earth, notice, not some distant heaven, but they're going to have the promised land of the earth as their inheritance. That promise, of course, applies to all the faithful it's a fallacy to suppose that Jesus was somehow talking only to ethnic Jews there. The Christian faith, you know, is Jewish in its origin, in its teaching, but it's available to all. As Gentiles, we can become grafted into the commonwealth of Israel, thus becoming part of what Paul called in Galatians 6.16, the true Israel of God, the spiritual Israel, if you like, contrasted with the Israel of the flesh, of which Paul spoke in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 18. You see, Paul would not have spoken of the Israel of the flesh, 1 Corinthians 10, 18, if he had not got in mind a true spiritual Israel, and that's the church. The church is gathered from all different ethnic groups and nations. They are all called by the same gospel of the kingdom of God as uttered by Jesus, and they're all invited, men and women alike, to become executives in that great kingdom, the new revolutionary government to be restored and placed on this earth at the second coming of Jesus. That's the kingdom for which we pray when we say, Thy kingdom come. May God's will be performed on the earth. And you see, that is not happening now. According to the New Testament, the earth is a wicked place. The world is under the domination of a wicked spirit. Satan himself is responsible for the mischief and the chaos that is now found throughout the four corners of this earth. But all of that's going to change. It will change radically when the kingdoms of this world become the kingdoms of our God, and that will not happen until the seventh trumpet blows. 
the trumpet of the resurrection. In Revelation 11, verses 15 to 18, we read that the angel sounds the blast of the seventh trumpet. At that point, the governments of this world change hands, and the kingdom of God will be inaugurated, initiated by the arrival in power and glory of the Messiah, who was destined from the beginning to inherit the throne of his father David, as the angel told Mary in Luke chapter 1, verse 32. That famous verse in Luke 1, verse 32, gives us an excellent foundation and basis for understanding the mission and the ministry, and indeed the gospel of Jesus, because you see the gospel of Jesus centered on that master concept of the kingdom, and it's precisely the idea of the kingdom which comes to Mary via Gabriel the archangel in the very first communication given about the coming Messiah. We read in Luke 1 verse 32, The Messiah will be great. He will be called the Son of the Most High. For the King of Israel, in other words, the kings of Israel were sons of God. Indeed, Israel corporately was called Son of God in Exodus 4.22. But this individual will be par excellence the Son of God, the special Son of God, the unique Messiah. And the Lord God will give him, Gabriel said to Mary, the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. There it is in black and white. I have to tell you that the throne of David has not been removed to heaven. To suggest that the throne of David was suddenly transported off this earth is to undermine everything that had been said about the messianic promise in the Hebrew Bible. To imagine that the throne of Israel has disappeared to the heavens is about as problematic as saying that the throne of England has been removed to Russia. No, the throne of David, as every Jew who understood the messianic promises knew, was to be the restored throne of Israel in the land of the promise, that land which, according to Hebrews 11.8, Abraham had resided as a resident alien, as a green card man, not actually owning any of the land, and yet destined to inherit it with the Messiah in the future. That throne of David is the central hope of the Jewish nation, and the idea of the kingdom of God was closely tied with the idea of the restoration of the Davidic kingdom in the land of Israel, restored and renewed by the presence of the Messiah. It was to that hope that the disciples were still clinging tenaciously, and rightly so, of course, when they asked in Acts 1.6, Has the time now finally come for you to restore the kingdom to Israel? Acts 1.6 Jesus did not discourage that hope for one moment. How could he? As a good Jew, he believed in the promises made to David that his throne would be restored in Israel. Jesus simply told the apostles in reply to that question about the restoration of the throne of Israel, he told them simply that it was not theirs to know when that event would happen. It wasn't a question of whether the throne would be restored to Israel in the kingdom. It was only a question about when that was going to happen. And Jesus said that only the Father knew that. The date and the time of the restoration of all things is known to the Father only. But the fact of that restoration underlies the Christian gospel of the kingdom. The whole story of God's great plan as it's unfolding in history on this earth is tied up with this notion 
of the kingdom of God. No wonder then that the kingdom of God is the label given by Jesus himself to the Christian gospel. And all the apostles preached that very same gospel of the kingdom. Indeed, this gospel of the kingdom, Matthew 24, verse 14 records, must be preached in the whole wide world as a witness to the nations before the end of the age can come. Before, in other words, the kingdom can be established, that kingdom for which we are commanded to pray, Thy kingdom come. No wonder then Jesus, knowing that the kingdom would be restored, urges his followers to seek first a place in the kingdom of God. Seek first the kingdom of God, Matthew 6.33, and all the additional necessities of life will be supplied to you as a bonus. These are the words of Jesus himself in Matthew 6 and verse 33. One of the great keys to successful Bible study is to understand the messianic kingdom framework which undergirds the entirety of the scriptures. From the very beginning, God has been a kingmaker and a kingdom restorer. We read of the books of kings in the Old Testament times and we're shown the difference between the good king and the bad king. Finally, the ideal king arrives and with his gospel of the kingdom, he invites others to become ideal kings and priests in order to reign with him on the earth in the kingdom of God. Revelation 5, verse 10. We invite you to request from us a tape of this program or our free book on the kingdom of God, perhaps an article on what is the Christian gospel. These items are offered to you free for your personal Bible study at home. You can call us at the telephone number to be given in just a few moments. Meanwhile, join us again for our continued discussion of Jesus' favorite topic, the gospel about the kingdom of God.